Hey guys, I invite you to open to uh, Ezra 7. We're going to be reading 6 through 10. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses, that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord was, the Lord his God was on him. And there he went up to, also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king. Some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of the God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. This is the word of the Lord. I'll grab a seat. Let's pray. Father, we are really grateful to be called your children by the work of your spirit and by the blood of your son. God, the very last thing that these people here need tonight is to hear from me. Because as we just said, we're here to hear from you. Lord, we know that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word remains forever. Lord, I pray by your grace, you would use your word to transform us. So speak, Lord, for we, your servants, your children, are listening. Amen. One of my favorite documentaries of all time involves this guy named Steve Steve is a middle school science teacher. He's basically totally unlucky. He's really desperate for something to go right in his life, something to feel successful at. And he's going up against this guy whose name is Billy Mitchell. Billy Mitchell is kind of this real-life Dwight Schrute, okay? He uh, sells hot sauce for a living. And there's this epic battle that goes on at the heart of this documentary, but it's not a battle over a girl, for business turf, or even a sport. It's for the all-time world record at the 80s arcade game Donkey Kong. It's amazing. It's called The King of Kong. I would tell you that you should check it out. My wife would tell you viewer discretion is advised, right? Or don't see it. Okay, cool. What's really wild about this documentary is it reveals this really crazy 80s arcade game subculture that I had no idea existed, and I wish I could do it justice up here. Um, There's a guy named Walter who is the official worldwide referee for arcade game scores. Yes, this is a real job, really exists. And Walter says this in the documentary. He says, I wanted to be a hero. I wanted the glory. I wanted the pretty girls to come up and say, hi, I see you're really good at Centipede. Yes. So Steve, the protagonist of this documentary, he spends night after night after his kids go to bed playing Donkey Kong in the hopes that one day he'll be able to challenge the world champion Billy Mitchell and get some glory for himself. And the stakes get raised a little bit when he finds out that the Guinness Book of World Records is actually going to give a spot in their next book to this record. His daughter says, you know, she's eight years old. I never knew that the Guinness World Book was so important. 
Steve responds back, well, yeah, I, I guess a whole lot of people read that book. Without missing a beat, his daughter says, yeah, some people sort of ruin their lives to be in there. <sighs> and it's really easy for us, it was easy for me watching this documentary to laugh at these people and think, what a waste, right? I mean, how could you give your life to something as silly, as inconsequential, as meaningless as an old video game? Because we know that there's got to be better things that we could be doing with our time and with our lives, right? And I want you to compare Walter's life mission statement, if you want to call it that. I wanted all the pretty girls to look at and see how good I was at Centipede, to Martin Luther King's, okay? Famously, he said in his I Have a Dream speech, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Two life mission statements, if you will, leading to two very different life choices, how they were going to spend their time, what they were going to be living for. You guys may not have a life mission statement as college students. Probably your roommates would think you were super weird if you did. But each of us has a set of internal principles that help us decide what is most important to us, what is really worth living for and dying for, what is right and wrong. Every one of us has a particular worldview that it's built from these principles, and it ultimately shapes what we value, where we spend our time, and how we spend our money. And your worldview reveals what you believe about all the big questions about life, about who God is, about mankind, about the afterlife, and it colors the way that you think about every topic that gets debated in our culture today, whether it's abortion, religion, same-sex marriage, race, military in intervention, the death penalty, genetic modification, and on and on and on. Your worldview colors the way that you talk about all of these things. So there's a couple questions that I want to ask you guys to be thinking about tonight while we look at the life of Ezra. What is worth your life? What is worthy of you giving your life to? And what is your worldview? In other words, what principles and convictions are going to shape the decisions that you make for the rest of your life? And perhaps most importantly, where are those convictions coming from? Are they coming from inside? Are they coming from your culture, from your parents, from somewhere else? Now, I want to set the stage a little bit as we come to Ezra, okay? So if you were here a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Jacob. Jacob was the grandson of Abraham. God gave these grand promises to Abraham, right? I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to give you this promised land, and the whole world is going to be blessed through you. Moses, he leads God's people, the people of the promise, out of slavery into Egypt. Joshua brings them into the promised land, and eventually a kingdom gets set up, right? David becomes the king of Israel, and it looks like all of these promises are coming true except really terrible things happen almost immediately after that, right? The kingdom falls apart. All of Israel, or at least most of Israel, is brought into captivity in Babylon. And Ezra, when he finally arrives on the scene, over 125 years have passed since God's people were taken into captivity. You can imagine some of these people that knew the promises, they had started to get pretty disillusioned. And the Bible tells us that most of the Jews, both in Babylon and that were left around Jerusalem, began to live and worship just like their pagan neighbors. I mean, sure, they probably still aligned themselves with God, 
They probably still sometimes worshipped God, but they only worshipped him alongside the gods of their neighbors, these gods of sex and power and wealth, raising kids who did not care anything about the Lord. So it's in the midst, in the midst, that's a hard thing to say, in the midst of this society that increasingly cared less and less about what the God of the Bible said, Ezra thought the most important thing that he could do with his life, look at verse 10, was to set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. In other words, Ezra decided that he was going to build his life around three things. He wanted to know God's word, he wanted to obey God's word, and he wanted to teach other people to do the same. So that's where we're headed tonight. I'll look back for a second at verse 6, because here we see just how Ezra understands God's word, where he understands it to come from and why it's so important. It says that he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. So he knows that Moses wrote the law. He knows the story of Exodus and what God did. He knows that the law of Moses came from the Lord, the God of Israel. In other words, the God who had made these promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Israel. And imagine this, okay? I, I know you guys know this, but imagine for a second that you didn't. Imagine you were learning for the first time that there is a great and powerful God who calls the stars out by name, who dreamed everything that exists into being, who sustains it all with the power of his word, who rules as king over all the things that he's made. And for reasons beyond our comprehension, right, he decided as the centerpiece, as the last piece of his creation to make you and me in his own image so that we could have a relationship with him, so that we could reflect his glory to the world. This great and mighty God, not only that, but he wrote us a book so that we could know what he is like. And this book is filled with stories of his grace and his kindness towards his children. Ezra knows this. And in light of this, he says with his life, I've got to know this amazing God, and I cannot know the God who wrote this amazing book unless I know what this amazing book says. These words tell me who God is. They tell me where I came from. They tell me how life is meant to be lived. And I couldn't know any of these things without this amazing book. So I'm going to give my whole life to know this book, to submit to this book, and to teach other people to do the very same thing. In other words, Ezra really understands how precious of a gift God's word is. And so he builds his whole life and worldview upon it. One of my questions to you guys and to myself is, do we really have any clue how precious this really is? How amazing it is that we can actually have this, be here tonight, look at it together, and study it in our own language. Maybe another way of framing that question is, do you know how many people had to die so that this book could be translated into English? Okay, so 500 years ago, in England, there was a handful of men who started to study the Bible in its original languages. And they started to get totally amazed by the grace of God that they saw on every single page. And they decided, we have got to get this out to the masses. So they start translating it in secret. They start printing it and reproducing it in secret. Why do they do it in secret? Because pretty soon, if you were caught with a piece of the English Bible, you were burned as a heretic. In the span of just a couple years, hundreds of people were burned at the stake because they were caught 
with the English Bible. And I want to just share with you one story because I think it's amazing. And there's a host, a host of amazing stories. So there's a guy named John Rogers, okay? So he gets put on trial because he gets caught with a bunch of copies of God's word. The sheriff comes to him. He asks him to repent. John Rogers says this, that which I have preached, I will now seal with my blood. The sheriff looks at him. He says, sir, you are a heretic. John Rogers looks back at him and he says, I guess we'll find out on judgment day. And the sheriff says, well, I'm sure not going to pray for you. John Rogers looks back and he says, but I'm going to pray for you. I mean, what a man, right? Isn't that amazing? Not only this, okay, so there's a French ambassador who's watching this go on. And I just want you to catch this, okay? This guy is being led to his execution. He's going to be burned alive. This is what the ambassador said. Even his children assisted, comforting him in such a manner that it seemed as if not that he was being led to his execution, but to a wedding. Imagine the difference of those scenes, a wedding day and an execution day. And yet John Rogers knew that his execution day was a wedding day. So he was getting to meet his savior. Why were men like John Rogers so willing to die? Because they thought that, that this book was more precious than even their own lives. They so desperately wanted people like you and me to know our great God who is found in this word that they were willing to give whatever it took. And you know what's really sad? Like, I legitimately probably have a dozen of these around my house, right? Anybody in that camp? And I, I struggle. I struggle to sit down and read it. I find every excuse. Tell me, stop me when any of these sound familiar. Man, I am just too tired. I'm going to wait a little bit, and then I'm going to read. I couldn't really focus right now. Oh, man, I've got so much to do today. I won't be able to stop thinking about this, so I'm going to go ahead and get this done, and then I'm going to get to read later. Man, I've been, I've been working really hard all day. I just need to chill, decompress a few minutes so that I can really focus. Oh, man, these dudes just texted me to go eat, and I mean, I got to eat anyway, right, at some point. So I'll go do that, and then I'll come back and read. Man, I'm just too tired. I couldn't even focus if I tried. I'll try again tomorrow. And you know what's sad? I may struggle to know a Bible reference, but I bet I could tell you the projected score of a backup running back on my fantasy football team. Isn't that pathetic? And I don't know if Joel's still in here. Maybe it's safer if he's not. If you asked me what the book of Obadiah was about, I legitimately don't know. I know that it's in there but I don't know what it's about. But I could probably tell you where a lot of you ate dinner last night because you posted it on Instagram, and I know that it was probably good, otherwise you wouldn't have posted it on Instagram, right? That's what Instagram's for, only the good times. There's a woman named Jen Wilkins. She wrote a book called Women of the Word, and I love Jen Wilkins. She really helped me understand why some of our Bible reading doesn't satisfy, why it doesn't cut it. And I think a lot of us really want to know God in his word, but we think that it should come easy, right? If God wants us to know how to study the Bible, that it should come naturally. And when it doesn't, a lot of times we just kind of give up or we take shortcuts and we read a devotional or a blog post or we listen to a sermon instead, instead of really reading and wrestling for ourselves, or we try to use the Bible in ways that it was never meant to be used. 
Okay, y'all ready? I, got, I think I got four of these for you. So the first way that we can have a faulty approach to the Bible is kind of like a spiritual Band-Aid, okay? I, uh, you may not know this by looking at me, but I was not a very good athlete in high school. I was on the track and cross-country team. I came to Christ my sophomore year. I got really involved in FCA, and I love FCA. I need to say this as a qualifier. But my FCA t-shirt said, like every other FCA t-shirt that I've ever known, had Philippians 4.13 on it, right? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And for me, I took that, and I was like, I'm probably the slowest guy out here, but God's on my side, so I'm going to catch up to these guys in the last 10 meters. Nobody's ever been there? I doubt that very much. Or maybe... You wake up in the morning and you've got a zit on your face. Maybe your hair just looks terrible and you think, man, I I just look terrible today. So you flip to the back of your Bible and it says, are you anxious? Do you feel ugly? Do you feel alone? It says, "Turn, turn to Psalm 139. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. God made you in his image. Don't worry what anybody else thinks about you. God thinks you're beautiful. The problem is, although there's some truth in both of these statements, right, the problem is that we are taking the Bible and we're turning it to ask, what can it do for us? How can this book make me feel better about myself? And that's not what the Bible was meant to do. What what happens when you come to passages that are meant to convict you or passages that say, hey, if you follow Jesus, it might legitimately cost you everything. Second, Jacked up approach to God's word. I like to call this uh, the dice roll at the Bellagio. Okay, so we've all done this, okay? We don't know what we're supposed to read. So we say, God, just show me what I'm supposed to read today. Holy Spirit, direct me, direct me, direct me, whammy, stop. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before the Lord. God, that had to be meant for somebody else, right? All right, I'm going to turn here, uh, find something else, something. We would never read another book like that, right? Can you imagine if you were trying to read Harry Potter or The Hunger Games and you picked up in the second or the third book? It makes no sense. Or if you're trying to study physics or calculus or accounting or whatever English majors study. And you just randomly flip through your textbook on any page, whatever you feel like, and spend about 10 minutes a day. You're never going to learn it, right? Because that's not how books are meant to be read. And we come to the Bible. It is a different book, right? But it's still a book. It's meant to be read book by book because it's a book. And that's how books are read. (laughs) The next approach I like to call this uh, the magic eight ball approach. That was from Jen Wilkin. We ask the Bible very important questions, okay? What fraternity or sorority should I join? What major should I have? Who should I take to the next party? God, I don't have a date. I'm just going to go with whatever name comes next. So give me a name, give me a name, Drusilla. Sounds like a vampire. I'm going to try somebody else. I picked this one out beforehand, but it would have been really perfect. Judges 421. Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg 
and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. God, I get it. You don't want me to go to this party. Okay. The last faulty approach that we can have to God's word. It's kind of like a four-leaf clover approach. Okay. How many of you guys... This seems right. I know that I've got a test coming up or I've got this big paper. I've got an interview. I know that I should be spending time in God's word. So God, you watching? I'm going to do this first. I'm going to get in your word and I'm going to pray. Dear Lord, please help me do real good on this test. Please help this interview go really well. The room is silent because it hit too close to home, I think. I want you to compare these approaches to scripture with the words of Martin Luther here, okay? Because this is crazy. For some years now, I have read through the Bible twice a year. If you picture the Bible to be a mighty tree and every word, a little branch, I have shaken every one of these branches because I wanted to know what it was and what it meant. When we look at Ezra, there's something very important for us to remember. Like Martin Luther, he didn't wake up one morning and have this amazing grasp of scripture, right? He wasn't some weird kid who only listened to Christian music, who avoided anything that the world had to offer, who was sitting in his room at night praying for the world to end. And he's also not some deadbeat who's just got an inordinate amount of time on his hands. The Bible tells us that he is a diplomat in the Persian empire who through humility and faithful service, he gains the favor of the self-proclaimed king of kings, Artaxerxes. And you may not know who Artaxerxes is, but you for sure know his dad, Xerxes, who was the bad guy in 300. You can imagine that Artaxerxes probably wasn't the kindest of guys, right? And yet Ezra wins his favor. So Ezra is almost certainly an incredibly busy public official, but a man who, above all else, he builds his life upon knowing God's word, and he's willing to do the hard work of knowing it, of learning it. When I was in high school, I started to learn how to play the guitar, and it was really frustrating at first having to practice these scales that were super boring. It was not what I wanted to play. And I started to play long after a lot of my friends played. And so I'm watching them, seeing how good they are, and it feels really, really frustrating. But what's really cool is years later, because I put in the hard work then, more or less, if you hand me a song, give me enough amount of time, I can figure out how to play it. I have a lot of freedom because of the hard work that came beforehand. If you've ever had to learn a skill, like cooking or playing golf or sewing or whatever, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And all of you guys, even though you probably don't remember it, you had to learn how to read at some point. It was really frustrating. Our daughter really wants to learn how to read now. She's learning her ABCs. She can recognize a handful of words, but she can't read. She's trying, and Aaron and I are trying to teach her. But once you are trained how to read, once you get help from others, the entire universe of words opens for you. Do you know how great of a gift that is? So why did Ezra do the hard work of learning how to rightly understand the word of God? Not only because he rightly understood how valuable scripture really is, but also because he knew that a firm knowledge of scripture was going to be the only real way that he could properly evaluate the context in which he found himself in his situation. The world's falling apart. People are turning their backs on God. 
All signs point to hopelessness. God's promises look like they're all falling through. Ezra knows that they can't be because he knows what the Bible says. And it's like the difference between staring at a small section of George Surratt's masterpiece, A Sunday on the Grand Jet. You may not know what this painting is like, but it's seven feet by 10 feet, and it is comprised of literally millions of dots. If you were staring at one small section of this, it looks like nonsense because all you see are little picture dots. But if you were standing a proper distance back, you see the beauty. You see the thoughtfulness and the care that went into it and how it all fits together. And since Ezra had a firm grasp of Scripture, he could take a step back. He could see what God had done and what God had promised. He could remember God's sovereignty and then figure out what he needed to do. His worldview was not primarily shaped by his situation or by his culture, but it was built upon the foundation of the word of God. Just think about your life. How different it would look day to day if we could take that step back and remember. How little anxiety we would probably actually feel as we remember how good God has been to us. Now, not only did Ezra seek to know God's word, But Ezra 7.10 tells us that he strove to obey it. I was reading in 1 John earlier this week, and I came across this verse. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. I think that most of us, if we're really honest with ourselves, we're pretty content with kind of a cultural Christianity brand of holiness. What I mean is that we tend to look around and other Christians, see how they're living, and kind of make sure that we're keeping in step with them. And the problem is, is that the Bible, God has called us to be as holy as God is holy, and he's never lessened that standard. And what John is saying here in 1 John 2 is that the surest evidence that we have that we're in Christ is not simply that we say that we believe the right things, although that is infinitely important, but there's a lot of people who say the right things. But that there's a genuine general trend towards obedience in our life. And I want to explain just for a minute what that means and what that doesn't mean, okay? So what that doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that there's any way that you could earn a good legal standing before God, right? We're broken sinners. We have a debt that we could never hope to repay. But praise God that by his grace, out of his mercy, he looked at us and he loved us and he sent his son to live the life and die the death that we deserve to die. We're brought in by grace and we're kept by grace. But it does mean that one of the best ways to know that you've been brought from death to life, to know that your heart has actually been changed, is to see your heart become more like the Father's heart, to start to love the things that the Father loves and hate the things that the Father hates. Because Christianity is a relationship, obedience is not about checking off a list of do's and avoiding a list of don'ts. It's in freedom that we obey because we want to please God because we love God. And in the Bible is where we find out the things that are on God's heart. So one of the most important things that we can do as Christians is to give this Bible functional authority in our life to say whatever it wants to us, whenever it wants to say it, even when we don't like it, even when we find it confusing, and even when it could get us into a lot of trouble. I'm going to take the negative. I'm going to be really serious for a second, okay? Because when we stop giving Scripture authority over our lives, 
When we look at this book and we start to pick and choose what it is that we want to believe or think that we have to obey, we lose everything. And I mean that absolutely. At the moment that we start conveniently piecing together a religion that suits us, that looks a whole lot like Christianity, but isn't quite the Christianity of the Bible, once we forgo the authority of Scripture over us, we are necessarily deciding that our wisdom, our discernment, our insight are more important than what this book, that the God of the universe who rules over everything, has said. And that is a very, very dangerous place to be. Because very subtly, when we do this, we start to become our own rulers, deciding that we, rather than God, get to decide. And that is the essence of rebellion against God. It's exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden. And rebellion against God is not only foolish because it's against the God who rules over everything, but it's also foolish because God alone actually knows what's best for us and what would satisfy us. And he's told us that ultimate joy and peace and purpose, they're only found in his presence. I just had a birthday. I don't like cakes for my birthday. I like key lime pie because key lime pie is the greatest dessert that God ever gave to man. Amen? Right. My son is about to turn two. He had never had key lime pie before. Key lime pie is sitting in front of him, a great gift, generosity for me, sharing part of my pie with my two-year-old son who's not going to appreciate it anyway. And you know what he does? Say, Ezra, that's my son's name after this guy. Ezra, you want some key lime pie? You want to eat this? He goes, no, no. And I'm looking at him thinking, you have no idea what is in front of you. As soon as you taste this, you will want this forever and you're not going to eat your dinner. And every time you see it in the fridge, that's all you're going to want to eat. So eventually, we basically force him to eat it. And you know what? He loved it because it's key lime pie, so of course he did. When God calls us to obedience, it's also in part because he knows what will bring us the most joy, and it is obedience. Whenever our lives are out of step of joy, and joy is not the same thing as happiness, and we're not going to have time to uncover that tonight, we need to check and see, is there any part of my life where I am running away from what God would say? Because God has meant our joy. In Ezra 9 and 10, we see that a lot of the Jewish men that had resettled in Jerusalem had not only abandoned the faith, including some of the priests and Levites who were supposed to be teaching the people about God's word and how to obey it, but they had abandoned their Jewish wives and families. And they started moving in and raising families with pagan women. And Ezra knows God's word. And since his worldview, his beliefs about God, how the world operates, what is right and wrong, come from Scripture, he's broken. But get this, this is really crazy. He's not broken over his own sin, right? He's broken for the people, for their sin, and he's broken for the glory of God, that God's not getting the glory that he deserves. So he fasts and he weeps, and his prayerful repentance for the people leads to revival. But it's not the kind of revival that you and I would expect. It's not the kind of revival that goes up on Instagram. What happens when the people see what Ezra's doing? It is the most sorrowful, indescribably difficult repentance because they have to figure out whether they go back to their Jewish wives and what they do with their new families. They resolve to do whatever it takes to follow God. And they say to Ezra, search the scriptures and figure out for us what it means and we will do it because we want to obey and know this God. 
And for the next 13 years, Ezra teaches the people what it means to know and follow God. And if you've got a Bible, I want to wrap together this story. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. It's also written by Ezra, but it's kind of the fast forward. 13 years later, what happens? I'm going to start reading in verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for that purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkajai, Hashem, God only knows how to say that name, right? Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered him, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Achab, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kelatiah, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, they helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Why did I just struggle through all of those names? Because I think that this is absolutely amazing. And if you read Ezra and Nehemiah, the books in here, you'll see that these are the men that were with Ezra in the beginning, and several of them were some of the first people to repent. Ezra, he's super ordinary, right? He doesn't get a burning bush like Moses did. He doesn't get a dream like Joseph did. He's just got a book, and he's trying to live out what he thinks this book should tell him to do. He comes down, and he wants other people to know God's word, obey God's word, and teach others to do the same. And this list of names are the people that he spent 13 years training up until he comes to this point where they summon him to read God's word and all of the nation shows up to hear it. And in case you miss it, this is really amazing. All of God's people show up and they stand in reverence to hear the word of the Lord as if they were standing in front of a king. Ezra, he he reads a portion of scripture And then he stops. And then these men that he's invested his life in, they go throughout the crowd and they're helping people understand who God is, who they were, God's history of faithfulness and what's required of them. Essentially going family to family saying, hey, did you get this? Do you understand this? Because I would really love to help you understand this. Ezra wanted the truth to come alive and grip the hearts of God's people as they understood it. You know what happens? The people come back day after day for the rest of the week, hungry to hear the word of God and have it explained, standing for six hours at a time. Two chapters later, the people of Israel sign a covenant to walk in God's law that was given by Moses. This is Nehemiah 10, 29. Walk in God's law 
that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and statutes. If you're reading that, that sounds really similar to Ezra 7.10, doesn't it? Because as Ezra studied God's word and trained others, his heart became the nation's heart. And with that, Ezra takes a step into the background. And he lets his faithful students ascend to lead the next generation of God's people to follow after the Lord by knowing God's word, obeying it, and teaching others to do the same. Why Ezra 7.10 is the heartbeat of our college ministry is that we are praying that you would be a people who would know God's word, who would love it, who would strive to obey it with every area of your lives, and that you would be sent from here no matter what you do or where you live, to teach others to do the same. That's why we come together once a month to study God's word. That's why we want you here on Sundays. And this is really why we want you to be invested in a small group if you can. Because we want you to be connected to a member at our church who can sit with you like in Ezra and say, let's study this together and figure out what this means for our lives. Follow me as I fumblingly, as I failingly try to follow Christ. Ezra was a man who set his heart and his mind to know the word of God and to call people to follow it. But you guys know that there would come a man who wouldn't just merely set his mind and his heart upon the word of God, tell others to do it, right? He would be the very word of God made flesh. And he wouldn't just call people to repentance for their sin, but he would become sin because there was no other way for them to be brought back to God. He lived the life that Ezra was calling these people to live. He didn't merely weep for our sin, but he died for it to restore us to our relationship with God. So this is our hope. Not that we will ever obey this book perfectly, but that there was one who already did on our behalf. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I really pray for the people in this room that we, myself included, would just understand how precious of a gift it is that you gave us your word, that we can read it, that we can study it, that by your Holy Spirit, through community, we can understand what it means. Lord, I pray that we would set it upon our minds and our hearts to be people of this book, that our worldviews would be shaped by what it says, not by what our culture says, or not necessarily by what our family or our friends say or what our professors say, but what you have said for all cultures and all times. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.